2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and let's look at verse 1, please. Therefore, seeing we have received this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is about the ministry, and I've picked uh, four words to sum up 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Solace, Saviour, Scripture. Therefore, seeing we, being Paul, being Peter, being James and John, have this ministry, like being an apostle, like being an evangelist, like being writers of the New Testament, as we have received mercy, we faint not, we push on, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, in contrast to the false Judaizers, in contrast to the legalizers, in contrast to the law keepers, in contrast to the grace deniers, in contrast to those false apostles and prophets, false teachers, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Peter 2, 1, that were undermining the Apostle Paul's authority, his credentials, and his ministry. We have renounced, verse 2, the hidden things of dishonesty, again in contrast to the false teachers, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Very important that we get this clear in our minds, because if you think of most ministries today, most Bible seminaries today, they are very quick to get you into their schools, through their doors, to sign on the dotted line to pay the fee for the next period of time, called a semester. And yet, after arriving at a typical Bible seminary, a typical Protestant Bible seminary, within five minutes they are correcting the Word of God. They are handling the Word of God deceitfully. They will suggest on their websites, in their materials and their pamphlets that they are bible believers and some of these uh, places will claim to be king james and yet after five minutes of arriving it's clear that they don't believe in the king james they correct the king james bible i remember over 10 years ago we were down in south london and went to the charles spurgeon uh, bible seminary and to our shock it was interdenominational to our shock, they were selling books by people like Cliff Richard, Benny Hinn, Joyce Mayer, and other wicked apostates. And yet, to look at their materials, to look at their website, you would have thought they were a beacon of Bible excellence. And yet, when it came to the truth of the matter, they had no interest in the King James Bible. They were using all sorts of Bibles, and by doing so, became their own fine authorities. But, by a manifestation of the truth commanding ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The Apostle Paul would have to reiterate his credentials time after time. It was hard enough for him to preach to the Jews. It was hard enough for him to go into Gentile parts of the Roman Empire and preach to them. But on top of that, he was up against false teachers that were affiliated, shall we say, to the Mother Church in Jerusalem. And they would go around saying that James... The Lord's half-brother had given them authority to say what they were saying and by doing so were undermining the Apostle Paul. It would be the same sort of thing that the Lord Jesus Christ would find himself up against. 
Pharisees, scribes, those that were of the opinion that they were descendants from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, which of course they were in a physical sense, but not in a spiritual sense. And they would clash with the Lord. They would say to the Lord, for example, where do you get your authority from? Who do you think you are? And of course, Jesus would answer a question with a question, which I spoke about last week. But here, therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness to the best of their ability. They were transparent. And yet for today, ministries are autonomous. Churches are autonomous. Churches aren't accountable to other churches. Ministries are not accountable to other ministries. But in the first century, the apostles were a special class of people, and therefore they wanted to be as transparent as they could, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Now, in the context, the word of God would probably be the Old Testament, because the New Testament around this time was only partly written. But uh, prophetically speaking, this will be in reference to the Old and the New Testament. It's very important for those of us which are saved to be as open as we can, to be as transparent as we can, and to take time and care with the scripture. It's pretty wicked to come across a ministry online which pretends to believe in the finished work of Jesus on the cross concerning our salvation, when in reality they don't believe in it. It's bad enough to come across a ministry online which pretends to believe in the all-sufficiency of scripture, when in reality they don't believe in the all-sufficiency of scripture and it's bad enough to come across a ministry online which pretends to believe in jesus like living like dying when in reality they don't believe in him in fact just yesterday i caught a glimpse of the archbishop of westminster a catholic archbishop and he went to an event in london where there was an awful fire last week and we believe over 100, 150 people have died And this archbishop, one of the most senior Catholic priests in the UK, was all dressed up like these people do. And I watched him for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, no mention of the cross, no mention of salvation, no mention of the saviour. It's all about humanism. It's all about coming together. Let's try and pull together as a community. I'm not against putting my arms around somebody who's lost a loved one offering solace, offering comfort, but not at the expense of the gospel. Just this morning, I was coming back from somewhere, and I saw this woman heading off to her local church, which isn't far from where I'm currently standing. And I thought to myself this, I thought, number one, I wonder what her church does for her. I wonder what she gets out of going to her local church. This church that she goes to is very when it comes to gimmicks they have a bouncy castle which they hire every year and they like to dress their children up like having their face painted and every once in a while they will be in our local town with their healing ministries and yet no mention of repentance no mention of the cross no mention of the blood of christ what's going on here well they too are being dishonest they aren't telling people about sin they're not warning people about the judgment the scripture says how the lord is angry with the wicked every day how he hates all workers of iniquity and yet you won't hear the archbishop uh, a guy called vincent nichols coming out with such a statement you won't hear justin welby coming out with such a statement you won't hear any of these people coming out with such a statement in fact one more footnote to the event which took place in 
southwest London last week, very near the BBC headquarters. After the event took place, an awful event where we think 150 people were burnt alive, people were gathering outside this block of flats and near this block of flats is a church. I don't know what the denomination is. And they've commandeered the wall of this church. They've completely commandeered the wall of this church and they put stuff all over the church saying, we are looking for this person, that person, RIP, rest in peace. And I thought to myself, they wouldn't dare desecrate a mosque in such a way. And yet they will take this church over and just plaster photographs of missing people on this wall of a church, put signs up, messages up, trying to, I guess, come together as a community. And yet they wouldn't do it to a mosque. They wouldn't do it to a synagogue. And these church leaders are going around trying to comfort these people. In fact, they went to Downing Street just a few days ago. And I saw one caller, I guess he was Anglican, leading a delegation into Downing Street to meet the Prime Minister. And I thought, but have you witnessed to these people? Have you spoken to these people about heaven and hell, everlasting life? And I would put money on the fact that he hasn't done so. And no, just for the record, I'm not a gambling man. Look at verse 3, please. But... If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, whose image of God, should shine unto them, in whom the God of this world, Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Contrast that to chapter 3, 14. But their minds were blinded concerning the Jews, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Four, three, but if our gospel be hid, the gospel of the grace of God, the authentic gospel, contrast that to the false gospel that these pretenders that were going around in the first century were preaching to people. And Paul says over in Galatians 1 that such a gospel is an accursed gospel. But if our gospel be hid... It is here to them that are lost. So he is insinuating that these false teachers are unsaved, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Satan is the God of this world. He's got almost every church in his pocket. He's got the money markets in his pocket. He's got governments in his pocket. He's got the Illuminati in his pocket. He's got the Jesuits in his pocket. He's got pretty much everyone and everything in his pockets, except for a tiny minority a tiny remnant of bible believing christians in whom the god of this world hath blinded the minds not the hearts but the minds of them which believe not lest the lights of the glorious gospel of christ who is the image of god should shine unto them you can never underestimate the power of the devil and yet most churches don't believe in a real devil most churches don't believe in sin or the need for one to believe on the Saviour. They would much rather come together. They would much rather reach out to members of their communities. In fact, there was a church service, I think it was yesterday, in commemoration to those victims who had awful deaths. And don't misunderstand me, I'm not dismissing what those people suffered. It must have been an awful way to die. I mean, to burn to death and go to hell forever and burn, I can't imagine it. And yeah, I saw one church service on the news very briefly, and I think it was a Catholic service, a Catholic mass, and there were non-Catholics present. There were Muslims present. 
And I thought to myself, what's going on here? Why would such people want to be a part of such a church service? And why would such people who go to such a church want such people to be in their pews? The whole world's gone mad. And Satan, three and four, is the culprit. Satan has been able to do so much damage. Going back to churches, ministries, undermining scripture. Churches and ministries attacking the scripture, undermining the scripture, teaching their seminary students that we can't trust in the Bible, we can't put our faith in the scripture, that the best manuscripts say this, and the best manuscripts say that, and the King James, all very well as it is, is full of flaws. Going back to Revelation 22, that if you add, subtract from scripture, you risk having your name taken out of the book of life. So this is the context from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul, an official, legitimate apostle, messenger, disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, contrast that to an unofficial apostle, unofficial church father, a Bible perverter, a rejecter, a corrector of the word of God. And you understand what this is all about. And behind such people, of course, is the devil who has done a great work, quote unquote, on the minds of those which believe not. Latter part of verse 4, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Scripture says that the Lord wants all men to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And yet at the same time, as he is working to bring sinners unto him, get them saved and keep them saved, the devil is also working on the minds of those that are hearing the gospel. And it's like this. Let's say you go through Manchester on a Saturday afternoon or Leeds on a Saturday afternoon or Birmingham on a Saturday afternoon. You hear the word of God. Most of those towns, most of those cities have street preachers and you might hear two, three, four, five minutes of preaching as you commute from A to B. And many people hear the word of God from a tiny remnants of street preachers and it goes in one ear and out the other. And that's what Matthew 13 is all about. The parable of the sower. The devil comes along and he takes what has been planted and completely obliterates it. There is a spiritual war going on. And Daniel speaks about this. And yet for most people, for most church people, they have no understanding of this. They are getting dressed up. They are going to church on Sunday. They are doing their deeds and their beads. They are being a part of a system. And I go back to that lady that I saw this morning. I would think she was in her mid to late 50s. And she's all dressed up, going to her church, which on a Monday has a mother and toddler group. On a Tuesday evening has a Weight Watcher group. On a Wednesday has a yoga group. And yet she goes to this church. She tithes, no doubt, to this church. I would suggest this church is around 50 to 100 strong. They are charismatic, incidentally. And I spent many a year speaking to these people, when I come up against them on the streets, see them on the streets. And yet, I'm just curious. I guess I'm just curious as to what she gets from going to such a church. I haven't been to church in years. And I watch these people getting dressed up, and I just wonder what they get from going to church. Maybe somebody could drop me a line and tell me what they get from going to such a church. I mean, are they changed? Are they regenerated? Are they going into their communities with the gospel? You wonder, don't you? Verse 5. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. Not as simple as you might think. 
You join a church, you become a part of a ministry, and within five minutes you are pushing that church. You are pushing that ministry. It's very rare to meet someone on the streets of the UK who is born again, loves the Lord, loves the scripture, believes in the scripture, and is only preaching Christ Jesus the Lord. Most people that I know in the UK that go into the streets are a part of a church or a ministry or both and are pushing their church or their ministry. It's so rare to meet someone who is born again, loves the Lord, washed in the blood and just wants to preach Jesus Christ. Yes, there are some, but not many. Most people are pushing their churches like the one at the top of my street. And every summer, like I say, they have a get-together for the community. They have a barbecue. They have a bounty castle too. The kids get their faces painted. It's gimmicky, of course. And that church also uses the NIV. For we preach not ourselves, in contrast to the Judaizers who were preaching themselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. That's what this is all about. And ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. So Paul was an apostle, and as an apostle, he was sent by Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 9. He was also a servant to the local churches. He was known personally by the local churches, going back to the fact that the early church were still receiving revelations. Around the time of this writing, no more than half, no more than half of the New Testament was written. Hence why it was so important to gather once, twice, three times, four times, five times a week to break bread to hear the scriptures being read. That's what Acts 1 and Acts 2 is all about. And yet most churches are open once, no more than twice on a Sunday, perhaps midweek, perhaps on a Thursday. But that's it. Most churches, in fact, are only open once a week. I saw a documentary not long ago. It was a reality a program and it showed a group of people arriving in a very small town in America somewhere in Iowa tiny tiny town all unsaved people and they found this Methodist church and they ran over to this church they were somewhat intrigued by this church I don't know why and of course it was closed it was closed and I thought wouldn't it have been interesting had it been open and somebody had been you know available in that church to speak to this group of unsaved young American women It was closed. It was closed. And this is typical of most churches in the UK. Five again. For we preach, not ourselves, like raise your voice on a street corner, like get a banner up, like put a megaphone onto the streets, or take a megaphone onto the streets, let the word of God boom out. But Christ Jesus the Lord, the Lord denoting his deity. In fact, 317, the spirit of the Lord is also referred to as the Lord denoting his deity. In fact, from chapter 1, 21 and 22, you've got the Trinity. So much meat in this epistle. The Trinity, chapter 1, the deity of the Spirit of the Lord, chapter 2, 17. And here, chapter 4, verse 5, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just wonder how many in the first century in Corinth would have read such an epistle. They were so busy doing their own thing. They were very carnal. Contrast that to the Galatians that were very legalistic, very upright. And I think of these well-to-do church people who dress up every Sunday. They put their Sunday best on and they put on a good show and the ladies wear their big hats and they all come together. And yet the moment the service is concluded, off they go back to their homes 
ties come off, hats come off, and it's like nothing has changed. I'm not saying all people are like that. I'm sure there are some good upright people, good saved people that are in church systems that are trying to do something for the Lord. Of course, I won't stand this morning and slam all of them, but I'm just wondering, I'm just curious, I guess, as to what these church people get out of their churches. Look at verse 6, please, from chapter 4. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, had to shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In reference to Genesis, let there be light, and there was light. Christ is the light of the world. He would say that your light should be seen by all people. You get saved, you want to do something for the Lord. It's kind of normal. And most people want to get other people saved. That's what this is all about. You don't keep it to yourself. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that's power, hath shined in our hearts, contrast that to the Judaizers, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul was impeccable. It's very difficult to look at Paul and find fault in him. He would find fault in himself, we know that, as would Peter, as would John Mark, as would James, the half-brother of the Lord. But when it came to Paul's motive, when it came to his desire to get people saved, it's very difficult to find fault in him. He wanted people to be saved. He knew the consequences of not being saved. Seven, but we have this treasure in earthly vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He won't take credit for the salvation of people. Yes, he was able to go from A to B, as we are able at this ministry to go from A to B and get people saved, to preach to people, to build people up. But we know, as would Paul, that it's of the Lord, not of ourselves. And also, verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthly vessels. Your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. If you want to really please the Lord, deny yourself. If you want to really glorify the Lord, Pick up your cross every day and follow him. It won't be easy. In fact, I will say this to you. It'll be almost impossible. It'll be very difficult to deny yourself. But if you do that, if you attempt to do that, he sees it. And it pleases him greatly. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So you've got the Judaizers going around in the first century claiming to have been sent via Jesus. Of course, no doubt, thanks to the mother church in jerusalem they would have a they would uh, be claiming that their credentials came from jerusalem and obviously linking it back to jesus but they had no gospel they had no real gospel they had no message which was authentic they were legalists they were law keepers they were grace deniers they would probably say to you that if you don't live it you lose it which is what most churches teach and believe that you shouldn't criticize people that you shouldn't Preach against sin, that you shouldn't hold up the name of Jesus, that if you're not in a system, you may as well be dead, which is what one person said some years ago. They do so much damage to these people because they are not either saved or they're not grounded, they're not mature. But verse 8 is what a real apostle, is what a real believer in Almighty God will experience. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life force of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. 
How many people do you know? How many ministries or ministers or church leaders do you know that could claim this? Troubled on every side. Not the Archbishop of Canterbury. Not the Archbishop of Westminster. Yet not distressed. Perplexed? I don't think Benny Hinn is perplexed. I don't think Joyce Mayer is perplexed. I don't think Joe Olstein is perplexed. But not in despair. Persecuted? Do you think someone like uh, Kenneth Copeland is persecuted? Do you think someone like uh, Chuck Swindle is persecuted? Do you think someone like John MacArthur is persecuted? But not forsaken, cast down. Which church leader from the Methodists, Anglicans, Greek, Russian Orthodox Church would be cast down, would be despised, but not destroyed? Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, because he lives in us, and because he lives within us, we are his uh, representatives, if you see a saved man or woman on your travels, Christ lives within such a person. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. That's the key. And yet it's very difficult. You see, it's like I said before, the scripture tells you how to live. It tells you how to think. It tells you how to do this and that. It tells you the standard that the Lord will judge the world by. And yet we all fail. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's why we preach Christ Jesus the Lord. That's why we preach imputation. That's why we preach once saved, always saved. Because if that wasn't the case, if there's no uh, safety, if there's no solace in the Savior, if there's nothing sacred from Scripture, if we can't trust what we read, we're all sunk. We are finished. So I will say this, that verses 7 down to 10 are or would be a clear picture of what a real Apostle, evangelist, disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ would experience. And this is what Paul would experience. Contrast that to those that were going around undermining him. In fact, most ministers, most ministries are very wealthy people. They live very comfortably. They live in mansions. They have private jets. They don't live in the real world. They don't live on skid row. They don't live with the people. They live in gated communities, private estates. They couldn't relate to the Apostle Paul, and yet they would give the impression of following the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul would tell you over in 1 Corinthians 11 to follow him as he followed Christ. It isn't easy, I know. 11. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. For we which live are always, always in every possible way, delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, picturing dying to oneself, that the life also Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. That's the key. The key is to shine for the Saviour. The key is to put the old man to death, renew your mind each and every day, so that you can be a blessing to others. 12. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Death to the old man, death to oneself, which will then grow the inward man, the new man. And as a result, bless saved spectators. So one more time, Paul was the real deal. Paul was a living epistle. Paul got people saved. Contrast that to the pretenders, the legalists, the law keepers, the Sabbath keepers, those that were going around trying to get folks to follow themselves. Jesus Christ had a great view of scripture. He had a great view concerning his death on a cross And he had a great view concerning Almighty God. He loved his father. The apostles and Old Testament prophets would also mirror Jesus. 
on so many views, on so many points, in so many different ways. And yet this group are going around slandering Paul, trying to attack Paul, trying to destroy Paul. And like no one else in the New Testament, he would have to reiterate his credentials time after time. How tiresome it must have been for him. So I'll close it there in verse 12 and just say this, that this chapter is the chapter when it comes to ministry. This chapter tells you what happens if you live for the Lord, like verses, like verses 8, 9 and 10. And yet, how many people do you know that could claim these verses and say that they are suffering on a daily basis, that they are being spat upon on the streets, cursed, condemned on the streets, ridiculed on the streets? For most people in the UK, their faith, if they have a faith, is a private one. And once they go to church, they go back into the world and you don't see them. You don't hear from them. They're no threat to anyone. Like those in organised religion, like those leaders down in southwest London trying to reach out to members of the community, which from my uh, understanding are mostly Islamic. They're not preaching the gospel to them. They're not warning them about heaven or hell. They are simply treating them as equals. Like we all believe in the same God, we're all good to go, that Jesus loves everyone, that you can do what you will, and it's all good. Contrast that to Paul, who would go around saying that it was necessary to repent, that he was guiltless of the blood of all men. Contrast that to Jesus, who would say to the Jews that, and if you believe I am, you would die in your sins. And you see within five minutes, don't you, the difference between a true apostle, a true ministry, a true minister. And then you look at the Bible believers, compare those to the Bible rejectors, the Bible perverters, the correctors. There's so much material in Second Corinthians that if you don't read it, you can so easily miss it. But I'll close it there in verse 12. And next week, God willing, pick it up in verse 13. Okay, so we are still working our way through Second Corinthians chapter 4. And when it comes to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is the chapter, this is the place to go when it comes to the ministry, when it comes to the minister. If you are a minister, you need to understand that it's a pretty lonely walk. You would have to stand alone. But just a few points to uh, go over again. From chapter 2, verse 10, Paul speaks about being in the person of Christ, having the office of an apostle, and he had the authority as an apostle to speak in the person of Christ. From verse 17, he says, speak we in Christ. From 520, he speaks about being in Christ's stead. We beseech you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. Chapter 13, 3, he says, Christ speaking in me. The reason for this, of course, is that he wants to once again reaffirm his credentials. He wants to reaffirm his integrity. He wants to reaffirm his sincerity. Contrast that to the Judaizers. Contrast that to those that were going around offering themselves as ministers of the Lord, like the Gnostics, like the first century Nicolaitans, like those that would try to undermine one's faith in the scripture, one's faith in a saviour. And of course, you think of the Catholic Church. They're very good at undermining one's faith in the saviour, one's faith in the scripture, as are the Mormons, as are the Jehovah's Witnesses. They all on the one hand, offer themselves as being legit, as being genuine ministers, quote-unquote, and genuine churches, quote-unquote, and then turn around and say that you can't trust the scripture. 
that the King James has many errors, quote-unquote, and that if you really want to get closer to the truth, you need to join their organization. But sometimes it's possible to separate uh, ministers from ministries. Sometimes it's possible to separate church people from church systems. Sometimes it's possible to separate music from musicians. And I say that because... One more time, this is a place to go when it comes to the ministry. When it comes to what happens if you are a minister and you have a ministry as well. But the truth of the matter is that many pastors are too popular with their secular societies. In fact, some evangelical and fundamental leaders like Billy Graham have been too close to unsaved political slash false religious leaders. And I think of those... uh, transcripts that were released maybe 10 years ago concerning Billy Graham and Richard Nixon and Nixon can be heard blaspheming on tape he can be heard uh, attacking the Jews he can be heard making all sorts of derogatory statements against all sorts of people and Billy Graham doesn't say a word he was too close to the top job and as a result he would compromise himself the Lord's ship salvation crowd can be very cruel and sharp contrast that to the name it and claim it uh, brigade they can be rude crude and sacrilegious all these people offer themselves as being legit all these people offer themselves as being the real deal and yet if you take the time to drill in a little deeper into such people's ministries and following and what they stand for it's a different ball game altogether but from chapter 1 uh, verse 21 paul makes it very clear that he had been anointed by God contrast that to the self-appointed false teachers slash Gnostics uh, slash Gnostics from Corinth just for the record Gnosticism is a belief that there is truth quote-unquote outside of scripture like the scripture is all very well and we love the scripture so they say but there's more truth outside of the scripture which where the Catholic Church come along and they say well the magisterium of the church is able to offer additional light. And they believe that every time the Pope speaks ex cathedra, hasn't been many times over the last two, three hundred years, he is infallible on doctrines and morals, faith and morals. And yet when a Catholic gets wind of this paedophile pedophile cover-up, this paedophilia problem, going back centuries, they are shocked. Because they've been told that the Pope is infallible, like I say, concerning faith and morals. And yet when it comes to this paedophile cover-up, this global cover-up, which has cost the Catholic Church billions of dollars, pounds, euros, when it's come to their uh, need to pay out to cover up such a scandal, they are absolutely devastated because they've been told that their church is infallible, The same is true of the Mormons. They've been told for a long time that they are something special. They believe in the Aaronic priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood. And yet, if you take the time to look online and check out someone like uh, Lorenzo Snow or Hinckley or other leaders over the past, since Young, since Smith, you'll be shocked, just shocked as to what is available to read online. In fact, even Mitt Romney had to box very clever when he was running for the American president some years ago, the office of the presidency. He was very careful what he would say. And I'm thinking, of course, of Gordon Hinckley. Go back to the 1980s. Gordon Hinckley was their top man. Much stuff online about Gordon Hinckley. Much stuff which will shock you 
if you are a Mormon. But Paul, like I say, will reiterate his credentials. Paul will have to take the time out to plead with the Corinthians because I believe it comes down to this, that number one, Paul would have to fight for every convert. Number two, he'd have to fight for every meal. Number three, he'd have to fight for someone to lay his head. Contrast that to someone like Benny Hinn, who's worth $60 million, or Joe Osteen, who's worth $55 million, or Joyce Mayer, who's worth $75 million. And you see very quickly, don't you, the difference between a legitimate ministry like Paul and such false televangelists. But in the context of Second Corinthians chapter 4, it's Paul, it's Corinth, it's the first century. In the context of Second Corinthians chapter 4, it's Paul living hand to mouth, working the streets, going from A to B, getting people saved, trying to build people up and having to dig deep into the scripture. If you think about other so-called false teachers, false leaders over the years like Muhammad, like Ellen White, like uh, Mary Baker Eddy, all very dubious people, all very wealthy people. And yet Paul would speak over in 1 Corinthians of being almost at the point of starvation. Jesus Christ would say that he had nowhere to lay his head. And yet these people own an entire street. Some of these people have mansions. Some of these people have uh, private security guards, dogs. In fact, one guy has his own private Learjet. And yet his followers think it's quite normal. And when the Pope goes to A to B, he travels with his own private army. What's going on here? You talk about ministry, you talk about a minister, Paul the Apostle is the man to go to. From chapter 1, verse 23, Paul will even swear by God that his ministry was legitimate, that he was the real deal. Because one more time, had he not spoken up, had he remained silent concerning his critics, it may have led to the Corinthians saying, well, perhaps we can't trust Paul. Perhaps Paul is like Benny Hinn. Perhaps Paul is like Joyce Mayer. Perhaps Paul is like... All of these dubious TV evangelists. Perhaps he's only in it for the money, which of course was a terrible lie. But for me, the main verses thus far from chapter 4, and I want to look at these verses again, will be verse 8 to verse 9. Look at verse 8 from Second Corinthians chapter 4. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. That's a picture of a minister with a ministry. There's a picture of a genuine minister with a genuine ministry, unlike someone perhaps like Paul Washer, Ken Ham, James Dobson, who was applauded this past week by President Trump. We are troubled on every side. Does that sound to you like Justin Welby, who this week had a Islamic meal at Lambeth Palace to celebrate the end of Ramadan? We are troubled on every side. Does that sound to you like Ray Comfort or perhaps Ravi Zachariah or perhaps Joseph Prince? Yet not distressed. So in spite of being troubled on every side, like under attack on multiple fronts, they weren't distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're not on the point of self-destruction. No matter how bad things get, we keep pushing on. And it contrasts that to someone like Nicky Gumbel, who made a lot of money off the back of the uh, Alpha course and was able to copyright his books, his 
DVDs, his uh, publications, and he's made a fortune off the back of the Alpha Course, or as it should be called, the Alpha Curse. Persecuted, verse 9, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Does that sound to you like Basil Hume, who would go to the palace back in the 1980s and have tea with the Queen? I mean, who are these people? Who are these ministers? Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical. Who are these people that offer themselves as being, number one, Bible believers, number two, followers of the Apostle Paul? Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. This is Paul at his lowest point. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Does that sound like Paul Washer, perhaps, to you? Does that sound like uh, David Hocking to you? Does that sound like Jacob Prash to you? I'm not saying these men aren't saved, but I'm simply making the point that these men, these ministries, whether Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Fundamental, when you read these verses... They don't tie up. They don't match up. In fact, let me say this. Most Western ministries could not relate to Paul's. And he certainly could not relate to theirs. Always bearing about, verse 10, in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus. Contrast that to the Judaizers in the first century that were living very comfortably. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. He's saying this. That what they would experience on a daily basis was what Christ would go through on a daily basis. Christ came from heaven to earth. He had nowhere to lay his head. He was a traveling rabbi. His life was a very difficult life. I think only once it says that he rejoiced. And in the context of his rejoicing, it was concerning, once again, false teachers, self-righteous people, people that offer themselves as being the disciples of Moses. Contrast that to the Catholic Church, the Pope, the Cardinals, the Archbishops, living very comfortably. Not just Billy Graham, not just someone like Ray Comfort, who employs half his family. Not just someone like Joseph Prince, who's got churches in America and Singapore. Not just someone like Justin Welby, who, like I say, this past week, thought nothing of entertaining Islamic leaders at Lambeth Palace for a meal to celebrate the end of Ramadan. And yet, when was the last time you saw a so-called Christian leader at a mosque? Or when was the last time you saw a mosque having a Bible study? Why is it that churches want to learn about Islam? Why is it that churches want to cozy up to Muslims and yet you won't find Muslims wanting to cozy up to Christians? In fact, if you don't believe me, go to Speaker's Corner. You will find dozens, if not hundreds, of Mohammedans that are standing around waiting to jump, waiting to pounce, on anyone who offers himself as a Christian. In fact, I think it was two weeks ago, I found a clip online of an ex-Muslim, now Christian, preaching at Speaker's Corner. And I would suggest he was, he's probably from the Middle East. I'm not sure whereabouts. And he's offering himself as a Christian, and I have no reason to doubt him. And as he's giving his testimony, as he is speaking against Islam, like their belief that if you leave their religion, you are fair gain for death they can kill you the muslims start to turn on him because they realize that what he's saying is true and he's speaking to this crowd of muslims maybe 200 and he gets very violent and they start pushing him off his steps the police are called they eventually arrive and yet they are completely incapable of helping this guy out and they almost say to him that it's your own fault 
You shouldn't be here. You are stirring up trouble. And yet all he's doing is speaking against Islam. Unlike Justin Welby. Unlike Basil Hume. Unlike Vincent Nichols. Unlike any Catholic, Protestant or evangelical leader. Unlike Nicky Gumbel. These men are too busy pushing their ministries. They are too busy making a lot of money from their ministries. And it makes me sick. But verse 8, 9 and 10 is the picture of a genuine minister slash ministry. Contrast that to those that Paul was up against. Very wealthy people, perhaps like Caiaphas, perhaps like Ananias, having relations with Herod, having relations with Pilate, like James Dobson with uh, Donald Trump, like Billy Graham with uh, Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon. Such people, if they're saved, are far too close to secular people. They're rubbing shoulders with secular people. If you are saved, if you have a platform, use it. Get the gospel out, please. So with that, let's try and conclude from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And last week we ended in verse 12, and I read it again. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Does that sound like anyone you know today? I mean, just sit down for five minutes when this broadcast has finished. Get a pen and paper and just think about any ministry, any minister, anywhere in the world, like in the West, that comes anywhere near this. So then death worketh in us. Death to the old man, but life in you. It's great to see a saved man living for the Lord, denying himself, which is very difficult, of course, and being able to say to themselves, as they witness such a thing, that it's possible. It is possible to pick up your cross. It is possible that when you're at your lowest ebb, 8, 9 and 10, you don't throw the towel in. You don't self-destruct. You don't turn around and say, that's it, I'm out. I'm going to retire. I'm going to resign from the ministry. You keep pushing on. And here Paul is proof that you can do just that. He would tell you that he could do all things through Christ which strengtheneth him. Look at verse 13. We have in the same spirit of faith according as it is written. I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus. Shall raise up us also by Jesus. And shall present us with you. Go to Psalm 116. This is the first Old Testament citation. From the Apostle Paul. And like most of the New Testament writers, when they quote the Old Testament, they don't quote all of it. Psalm 116, Psalm 116, look, if you will, at verse 10. I believed, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Yes, all men, whether saved or unsaved, are liars. All women, whether saved or unsaved, are liars. Don't kid yourself. Just yesterday, a guy came over to me. He's been saved two years. And uh, he gave us one of his tracks and we gave him one of ours. And he said to me, I've seen you somewhere before, haven't I? And I said, yes, probably online. And I gave him my website and he said, yes, that's right. He could, you know, he's able to place me. And we started to talk for five or six minutes. Nice guy, saved two years. And he mentioned some guys that he follows, ministries. And I said to him, well, I know one personally. I've met him a couple of times. The other I don't know personally. And I said, uh, just to be aware that this ministry that you follow, this minister that you speak very highly of, believes you can lose your salvation. Believes you can speak in tongues, that tongues are still for today. 
and also attacks the King James Bible. He was somewhat taken back by that statement, but we got on to salvation, like once saved, always saved. We got on to eternal security. I could see that he wasn't a believer in such. And I said to him, well, I only believe in one salvation, everlasting life, life without end. I don't believe you can lose it. And he was saying, well, a lot of people are walking away from the Lord. A lot of people are apostatizing. And I said, yes, that's true, but that doesn't mean they're not saved. And I could see that he wasn't really in agreement with me, but didn't want to challenge me. And I said to him, uh, how about the Corinthians? It says over in chapter 11 that they were sleeping in Jesus. It speaks elsewhere of the sin unto death. There are many people in the New Testament that sinned, never repented, and the Lord just took them home early. Now, the reason why I say that is because this particular chap only saved two years, no doubt sincere, no doubt trying to do the best for the Lord, was slightly self-righteous because what he was saying is this, I don't sin anymore. And if you sin, number one, you're not saved. Or number two, if you sin, you are inferior to me because I don't sin anymore. And yet what does First John say? If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. I believed, verse 10, therefore have I spoken. We're not sure who this psalmist is. Some have suggested it could be Jonah. I was greatly afflicted. He was certainly afflicted. He was forced to preach to the Ninevites. I said in my haste, all men are liars, women too. And that's why it's so important not to pretend that now you are saved, you don't sin anymore, you don't lie anymore, you don't steal anymore, you don't blaspheme anymore, you don't this or that anymore. But you will sin, you will stumble. And that's why, like I say, John makes it very clear from First John that if we, the redeemed, if we, the church, say that we haven't sinned or that we have no sin, like I am this perfect super duper character, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. Go back to Second Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, look at 13 again. We have in the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, Psalm 116, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. A picture, of course, to the rapture. By Jesus was all things made. Nothing has been made that wasn't made. John chapter 1, uh, Colossians chapter 1. We believe, we know that he which raised up the Lord Jesus, in reference to the resurrection, of course, shall raise up us also by Jesus, the Lord God, God the Father, will raise up the church by Jesus, through Jesus, and shall present us with you at the judgment seats of the Lord. This is great news. 15. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. For all things are for your sakes, going back to chapter 1, consolation, salvation, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God, the glory of God. And the word redound, Old English for simply meaning to contribute greatly to a person's credit or honor. Thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. Paul's not bitter. Paul's not overly depressed. Paul's not in despair. He knows that his integrity is on the line. He knows that such people are, again, trying to trip him up like they would do to the Lord Jesus, 
like they would do to the Old Testament prophets. And he knows that if he gets too caught up with such snidey remarks, such attacks, it will deflect. It will distract him from the overall purpose of doing what he wants to do. And that's why we don't push church systems. That's why we don't push ministries. We don't want to get caught up in, is this a good church or is that a good church? Is this a good ministry or is he a good minister? We don't want to waste our time having to speak on behalf of those that we don't even know. They won't speak on our behalf. They won't endorse us. So why should we endorse them? 16. For its cause we faint not. But though an outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. So once again, I am saved. I am being saved. I am going to be saved. Feeding into sanctification. And yes, you can stunt your spiritual growth. Let's say you get saved and you join a church, which is always very dangerous. And they say, well, we use the ESV or we use the NIV or we use the New King James or we are ecumenical. And you spend maybe a year or two in such a place and people do. You will be stunted. You won't grow like this guy from yesterday. Saved two years. His father came over 25 minutes later being saved 30 years. Nice guy. I won't criticize the father. I won't criticize the son. They were at some sodomite events in Blackpool, I think last week, giving out tracts. Praise the Lord for that. I won't condemn them. And I got talking to these two, not at the same time, but over a period of 25, 30 minutes. And we discussed the scripture. We discussed the sign of the times. And yeah, I just wonder, I just wonder at the back of my mind as to what they are being taught at their place of fellowship. I just wonder if they are learning if they are growing as much as they could decent people upright people doing far more than most people for which cause we faint not going back to verses 8 9 and 10 but though our outward man perish the old man yet the inward man the new man is renewed day by day so Number one, you can uh, limit your spiritual growth. You can stunt your spiritual growth. And yet, at the same time, it's the Lord's good pleasure. Philippians chapter one, that once he begins a work, he will bring it to conclusion. Which also goes back to once saved, always saved. It's like I've said so many times over the last 15 years that if my salvation was dependent upon me, or if your salvation was dependent upon you, you would lose it. I mean, just sit down sometime over a cup of coffee, get a pen, get some paper, and just spend five or six minutes thinking about the highs and lows concerning your Christian walk with the Lord from day one to the present. And I guarantee you, within five or six minutes, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, that page will be half full. And maybe within 20 minutes, that'll be completely full. One side of a sheet of paper. And I would suggest within an hour, if you are really honest, that you could probably fill both sides of a sheet of paper. And you will think to yourself, well, you know, I can see my sin. I can see my failures. And yet, thank the Lord, as far as the east is from the west, he's separated our sins. He's put our sins as far as the east is from the west. We are covered by the blood. And we are kept covered. But here, Paul, again, doesn't want to get too caught up with the snipers, the gripers, those that were jealous of him. And yes, jealousy is a major problem when it comes to those that have 
larger ministries compared to those that have smaller ministries. In fact, most people, I will say this, most people, most saved people don't fall out over doctrine. They don't fall out over the Bible issue. They fall out over jealousy. They fall out over this guy's got a huge ministry. I haven't. Or this woman has a huge ministry. I haven't. That's what people fall out over the most. Jealousy, personality, old man, old nature. Yes, it should be doctrine, of course. It should be theological issues like the scripture, like explaining justification. In fact, go back to yesterday, this chap that I was speaking to, saved two years. I don't think he really understood justification. In fact, I remember listening to a sermon online years ago, and the sermon went along the lines of this. This guy was giving a message, PhD, I think he saved, incidentally, and he said to his students, he said, hands up those of you which understand what the Reformation was all about. And there were maybe 100 people present, and maybe 10 hands went up, okay? And he said, hands up those of you which understand what justification means. Three hands went up. The point he was making is this. Number one, the Reformation was about justification, meaning exoneration, meaning once saved, always saved. Number two, the Reformation was about setting people free from Romanism. And he came to the conclusion, and I concur with him, that most of his students didn't really understand justification, didn't understand imputation. Most of his students were actually Catholic when it came to salvation. They thought that they stay saved by praying. They thought that by living a good life post their salvation, they keep themselves saved. And they thought that by not doing this, not doing that, they were somehow earned salvation it's terrifying such people theological students training for the ministry had no idea what justification meant imputation the reformation they had no idea what it meant and i think that's typical of most people most people that think you can lose it don't understand justification couldn't explain imputation have no idea what the scripture stands for have no idea what glorification means or sanctification all these words ending with ion glorification adoption And I'm not saying this to ridicule people. I'm not saying this to make people look stupid. I'm simply highlighting the fact that we have a great level of ignorance in the body of Christ today. People get saved and yet you you ask them to explain these doctrinal truths, these theological facts. Romans, justification, redemption, glorification, sanctification. They can't explain it to you. And they actually believe that if you don't live it, you lose it. It's terrifying. 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul will bypass the attacks. He will bypass the slander. He will bypass those that were seeking to pull him down. And today, yes, you can go to a court. You can sue someone for libel or slander. And I'll say this, that people have criticized me over the years. People have made videos against me over the years. People have sought to attack me verbally over the years. I don't spend five minutes. And I won't spend five minutes responding to such a person. I wouldn't take anyone to court for some of the things they've said against me. Not interested. But I'm not an apostle. I'm not going to be writing New Testaments. I won't be going to the third heaven. I won't have the sign gifts. You see, Paul, as an apostle, was a very unique man. And again, he knew that if he didn't speak 
up for himself that there was a potential loss or there was a potential split in the early church. And on top of that, people may come along and start to undermine his writings like First Corinthians, like Romans, that great epistle, like Galatians, like Ephesians. And that for him was just devastating. I mean, it's bad enough to criticize Paul and then turn around and say that you can't even trust his epistles, which is what people today would have you believe. For our light affliction, 17, which is but for a moment, sure, he'd be saved 35, 40 years before the Lord took him home, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And here we are, almost 2,000 years later, reading this epistle, teaching it, trying to get some light from it, trying to um, glorify the Lord through the written word of the Lord. While we look not at the things which are seen, going back to 8, 9, and 10, but at the things which are not seen, like New Jerusalem, like the rapture, like the thousand-year reign. For the things which are seen are temporal, like the here and now, but the things which are not seen, second coming, millennium, eternity, are eternal. So 18 verses speaking about the ministry, 18 verses speaking about the minister. And when it comes to Paul, he was pretty much impeccable, not sinless, not perfect. Like I say, and I've always said this, and I will continue to say this, that Romans 7, Philippians 3, he would lament his old nature. He would attack himself in a verbal sense. He would speak about uh, beating his body to submission, not physically, but spiritually, unlike the Opus Dei crowd who flog themselves until they bleed. That's not what he's speaking about. He was wanting to stay in fellowship with the Lord. He had a lot of pressure on him, a lot of pressure. And I wonder also, at the judgment seat of the Lord, how many people would arrive at such a place, say people, who have just resigned the ministry. They can't take it anymore. Because Christians, saved Christians, can be very spiteful. Christians, saved people, can be very bitter. Christians, saved people, can be very jealous. And if you've got somebody or a group of people that are constantly attacking you, constantly going around gossiping about you, it can destroy you. It can just cause you to throw the towel in. And I wonder how many people you know, will arrive at the judgment seat and you know, have to face the Lord and say, I couldn't handle it, Lord. At the same time, I wonder how many people will arrive at the judgment seats of the Lord who were in the ministry for 50 years and yet were never called to be in the ministry. And the Lord will say to them, you did this, you did that, you wrote books, you wrote, or you wrote books, you produced DVDs, you traveled the world selling your merchandise, and yet I never called you to do that. I never commissioned you to do that. Just imagine that. What's going to be worse? The minister or the ministry that was never called? Or the ministry, the minister, which threw the towel in, didn't keep on going? What's going to be worse? You wonder, don't you? 1718, keep pushing on. Don't get preoccupied with the here and now. Not easy, I know. Ignore the snipers. Ignore the gossipers. Ignore the critics. Don't look at someone like Ray Comfort, Ravi Zachariah, Joseph Prince, Justin Welby, the late Basil Hume, Vincent Nichols, Nicky Gumbel, Paul Washer, Ken Ham, James Dobson. Don't look at those guys and say that they are the real deal. They're not. I'm not saying they're all lost. I'm not saying that. But when it comes to ministry, when it comes to being a minister, 
based on this piece of scripture, they don't come anywhere near. They're wealthy, they are well-to-do, they rub along quite nicely with society, they don't do street work, they don't go to places like Speaker's Corner, they don't work the streets of their town, they don't stand against the ecumenical movement, they don't preach against secret societies, they don't preach against new Bibles, they don't preach against anything. They're too busy having meals with Islamists, they're too busy sharing platforms with one another. In fact, I can think of one message that was given some years ago concerning a saved trumpet player. And he wanted to play a concert in Sin City. And he asked his pastor, could he go there? And the guy said, no, you can't go there. And yet that same guy would share a platform with apostate Protestants. He wouldn't criticize them, would he? But to turn around and tell a saved trumpet player, which I think he was right to, incidentally, that he shouldn't play in Sin City. And yet he wouldn't take his own advice and shun sharing a platform with apostate Protestants. What's going on here? Double standards. But it feeds into the paid ministry. It feeds into the old, the old expression, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Don't rock the boat. But look at Paul. Struggling, almost homeless, living hand to mouth, persecuted, distressed, perplexed, forsaken, always bearing about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, putting the old man to death, that the life also of Jesus, verse 10, might be made manifest, seen in our body. 12 again, so then death worketh in us. If you love me, pick up your cross every day and follow me. If you love me, keep my commandments. But life in you, they saw Paul put himself to death. Contrast that to the Judaizers. First century law keepers, first century Sabbath keepers, first century grace deniers. Those guys are everywhere. In fact, most of those guys that I've mentioned this morning don't believe once saved, always saved. And they will turn around and look at someone like perhaps Ananias and Sapphira or the crowd over in 1 Corinthians 11 and say they weren't saved to begin with. You can't say that. Just because someone doesn't live like you doesn't mean they're not saved. Going back to my conversation with this guy yesterday, just because two people don't live the same, just because two people don't produce the same amount of fruit doesn't mean they're not saved. That's self-righteousness. That is self-righteous, and that is a big, big problem in the body of Christ today. Sure, First John chapter 2, they went out from us because they weren't of us. Had they been of us, they would have stayed with us, but they went out from us because they weren't of us, or they weren't any of us. Sure, there's a picture of permanent departure. There's a picture of somebody who wasn't saved to begin with. But if you're saved, if you're born again, you are forever saved. Going back to this piece of scripture, from, uh, or this epistle from chapter 2. Verse 10, 11. He says this man was forgiven. This man repented concerning the incest account. He doesn't say he's lost his salvation. He says he's saved. He says this man has repented. And he says, forgive him. And he says, if you forgive such a person, so do I. Going back to once saved, always saved. But one last time from 18, I will close. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There's so much to play for. Fight for every soul. Fight for the Lord. Fight for the word of God. Fight for the Savior's death on a cross. Take a stand. And if you do so, he will bless you abundantly. And if you don't, you will suffer. And you will feel a great loss at the judgment seats of the Lord. And I'll close it there, and next week, God willing, pick it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.